This episode contains disturbing content, including discussions of child abuse. Please take care while listening. On May 1st, 1990, Michelle Sutton left Pleasanton, California for St. George, Utah, in order to attend Summit Quest. Nine days later, on May 10th, the Suttons were informed that Michelle had died. In shock, they prepared for her funeral. This is Michelle's older sister, Christina. My mom, she is the strongest person I know, and she led me to help dress my sister for burial, putting Birkenstocks on my sister's feet and dressing her hair and putting clothes on, you know. The Suttons had two funerals for Michelle, one in Pleasanton on May 14th, 1990, and a second funeral in Calusa on May 16th. Michelle was buried in the peach dress that had been made for her to wear to Christina's wedding. When you look back on that time, you just feel like there were just angels surrounding the house. Because how in the world did we make it through that time? The funeral was mostly a blur to Christina, but she does remember one thing. Gail Palmer was there. I know that after the funeral, supposedly, according to dear Gail Palmer, I spoke with her after the funeral. Christina says supposedly because the conversation was so brief that she didn't give it much thought at the time. She told me that Gail approached her right after the service. I think we were loading Michelle's body into the back of the um, the hearse, or we were watching it be loaded up or something in the back of the hearse. Christina had never met Gail before, and she remembers Gail talking about Michelle's death, saying things like, it's so sad. Christina told me that it came off to her as if Gail was giving her condolences without taking any responsibility. She said Gail was very careful with her words. And Christina, she responded just like she would have to any adult at that time in her life. She was polite. I said something like, oh, it's okay, we understand, or something along that line. And then she used it as a quote for her benefit. It was like one of those moments where you're brushing somebody off, you know, like, oh, yeah, okay, you know. It was a totally just thoughtless, flippant moment for me. And she's going to use that as a quote? I'm sorry, I didn't know I was on the record. According to Christina, Gail later told a local news outlet that she had spoken with a member of the family at Michelle's funeral. She said the family was completely understanding and did not blame Summit Quest for Michelle's death. Christina said that her parents were really upset by this. They felt like Gail took advantage of Christina, approaching her at a vulnerable moment and then using that conversation to make herself look better. To Christina, it was a moment that revealed Gail's true colors. Interesting that she approached you at that time. Exactly. Or that that she was even at the funeral. Well, I don't think my parents had known much about how Michelle had died at that time. At this point, the Suttons did not have a lot of information about Michelle's death. The Mojave County Sheriff's Department opened an investigation, but that would take months. And while the investigation was active, the Suttons would be told very little. But Gail Palmer would waste no time in trying to control the narrative. 
From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist. This is Season 7, Episode 3. Gail Palmer, Damage Control. I'm Hannah Smith. Subscribe to Cast Plus to listen to all episodes of Season 7 of The Opportunist ad-free now at castmedia.com slash castplus. Follow, rate, and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. In the weeks following Michelle's death, Kathy moved forward with her life without really moving at all, as if she were stuck in a bad dream. A lot of it was in a fog. I got notifications from school that my children being late going to school, I would be reprimanded for that and need to get your kids to school on time. It's like, give me a break here. I'm trying to hold on and doing my best. Kathy began piecing together little by little that perhaps what Gail Palmer had told her about Michelle wasn't true. Gail maintained that Michelle had been totally fine one minute, and the next, she collapsed in the desert. Gail also said that right before Michelle died, she communicated with her counselor that she wanted to die. First of all, when Michelle died, we were told by the program that Lance Ferrara, one of the counselors, had given her a priesthood blessing. And he said that she wanted to go. So we're hearing that. And then Gail said she had a tear in her eye. And this was all their way of convincing us that it was Michelle's wish to die. But Gail was not with Michelle when she died. Michelle was in a group out in the desert with two counselors, Ruth Young and Lance Ferwerda, along with four other adolescents. You were in those initial stages of grieving, probably still a lot of shock, you know. But to hear her say something like Michelle was given a priesthood blessing and then had decided to kind of go on to the afterlife, what did you think of that? Was that comforting to you? Was it confusing? How did you feel about that? I didn't know what to think because at the time we were told that Michelle died, I was just in total confusion. We were waiting for an autopsy result. We were waiting for the detective's report. At the same time, we're talking to Gail Palmer and hearing her version of everything. And she said that Michelle had dropped dead without warning and that she saw paradise and she decided to go. Those were her exact words. But then they got the results of Michelle's autopsy. On May 11, 1990, an autopsy was performed on Michelle's body by Dr. Eugene S. Rosenville in Kingman, Arizona. Even though Summit Quest was based in Utah, the group had wandered across the border into Arizona, and that's where Michelle died. So the autopsy was performed in Arizona. The official cause of death was found to be dehydration secondary to exposure to the elements. The autopsy report called Gail's account of Michelle's death into question. A death by dehydration doesn't line up with Gail's story that Michelle died quickly without any warning signs. Then, on May 13, 1990, four days after Michelle died, the LA Times published an article about her death. In the article, Detective Dale Lent stated that based on interviews with other people at Summit Quest, the day Michelle died, she had complained that she was dizzy, and then she collapsed and died. 
This article, on top of the autopsy results, started to paint a different picture of Michelle's final day alive. Was she showing signs of distress that day? Did she receive medical care? There were still so many unanswered questions. There were people out there who could offer Kathy Sutton answers about what happened to her daughter, mainly the people who were there with Michelle, but the Suttons couldn't get to those people. Michelle's counselors, Ruth and Lance, were still working for Summit Quest. In fact, they had both been promoted. They weren't gonna talk to Kathy. There were the four other teenagers who were in the program with Michelle, but Kathy couldn't talk to them either because they were still out there, isolated in the desert, completing the 63-day Summit Quest program. None of them had been allowed to leave to attend Michelle's funeral, not even Michelle's friend Andrea, who had joined Summit Quest around the same time as Michelle. But of course, Gail Palmer was at the funeral. We wanted the kids there. <laughs> we wanted uh, Andrea there. We didn't understand why she was coming to the funeral and the children were not allowed to. Uh, that kind of made us angry because we felt like, you know, they should be there, especially Andrea, her best friend. And did you ask Gail about that? I don't recall. I just like to say I was so in the grieving process. And then on May 18th, one week after the autopsy was done, the Suttons received a letter from Gail Palmer. Kathy showed me the letter when I met her. It opens, Dear Kathy and Bob, our grief is with you at this most unfortunate time. It is especially difficult knowing the questions we all have. Here's Kathy reading part of the letter. Kathy and Bob, we love you so much and admire your tender sacrifice, which will bless the lives of everyone who has been touched by this tragedy in your lives. Tender sacrifice. That is how Gail described Michelle's death. In the letter, she suggests that they should do a second autopsy so they can find out the true cause of death. Gail wouldn't accept that she died of dehydration. Most of the time, it was Kathy who spoke with me. It was Kathy who kept filing cabinets filled with old newspaper articles and paperwork about Michelle's death. But when the topic of Michelle's autopsy came up, she went and found her husband, Bob. She wanted Bob to tell this part of the story. My name is Robert Sutton, and uh, I'm the father of eight children, and one of my daughters, Michelle, uh, who we lost back in 1990. We sent her to a program that was supposed to build her self-esteem, and unfortunately, uh, we got the program from word of mouth through the family, and they talked about how great this woman was. Gail Palmer, and uh, it was the slickest marketing campaign I've ever seen in my life. After Michelle's first funeral in Pleasanton, and before the second one in Calusa, where Michelle would be buried, Bob said he got a concerned call from the funeral home. Gail Palmer had been contacting them. She wanted to send someone to the funeral home to collect a sample from Michelle's body. And she said, what we'd like to do is I have a doctor... And I can have him come and take a piece of her heart. They had already contacted the mortuary to see if they could uh, do it. Supposedly, Gail told the funeral home that Michelle died because her heart gave out. And she was sure that Michelle had a pre-existing heart condition and she wanted to test for it. The funeral home did not give Gail access to Michelle's body. Instead, they called the Suttons. I was really distraught with that because the idea of her heart being gone and a friend of ours was a homicide detective. 
And he said, why in the world would you let them have a piece of her heart? He said, we have the best pathologist right here in Oakland. There's a great pathologist. So we ended up going back to the funeral home and saying, okay, we're going to we're gonna have you transport her to Oakland. There was also the strange issue of how Michelle's body looked. She was covered in bruises and scratches, so much so that the funeral home found it unusual enough to document it with photographs. The Suttons did not let Gail have Michelle's heart, but they did send Michelle's body to a pathologist in Oakland to have a second autopsy performed. And then they buried Michelle in Calusa and waited for the results to come back from the second autopsy. Subscribe to Cast Plus to listen to all episodes of Season 7 of The Opportunist ad-free now at castmedia.com slash castplus. You can follow, rate, and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. So thank you. Kathy Sutton felt deeply unsettled. She wanted to know what happened to her daughter, Michelle, but none of the answers she'd been given made sense or brought her peace of mind. Unless you've lost a child, it's hard to understand because I've never experienced a whole heart hurt. Your whole heart hurts, and it's just a pain you can't describe. It's just something you feel. Things got so bad for Kathy, she says, at times she had suicidal thoughts. I was in a state of shock and denial. Didn't know about the grieving process I do now, but initially shock took over in the beginning, and me wanting to go, too. I wanted to be with Michelle. I just remember the pills there on my dresser, tranquilizers, and I would hug and rock her picture. I wanted to take them. Because you're there when they're born, and I felt resentful that I wasn't there when she left. And I wanted to hug and embrace her. But I didn't take the pills. I have seven other children. I mean, you know, reality came to me that I, I can't do that. Kathy would get her answers eventually. But first, something else happened. And it changed the way that people talked about Michelle's death. On June 27, 1990, only six weeks after Michelle died, Another teenager died out in the desert, this time in Challenger. Challenger is the wilderness therapy program run by Steve Cartesano, the program that John, Tamira, and Philip, who we spoke with in episode two, all attended. It's the same program where Gail Palmer worked before starting Summit Quest. Kristen Chase was exhausted and underfed. She kept saying she felt like dying. The counselor pushed her to continue until death was her only salvation. 16-year-old Kristen Chase was only at Challenger for three days. She was taken on a four and a half mile hike during the hottest part of the day. She complained of feeling dizzy and having a headache, but she was ignored. And then she collapsed and died. Here is Kristen's mother, Sharon Fuqua, being interviewed on The Lisa Show. Well, I was in shock. (laughs) And um, when they first called, uh, 
The sheriff's office said, um, hold on just a moment. Mr. Cartasano wants to talk to you. This and is the I, head of the camp? Steve Cartasano, yes, was the head of Challenger. And um, my first thought was she ran away. I knew she wouldn't want to go to this program. And, and we did have the escort service come to pick her up. And so my first thought was she ran away. And they told me she died. Based on Kristen Chase's autopsy, she died of exertional heat stroke. There were reports that she had been denied water, had complained of feeling ill, and had been ignored and ridiculed by her counselors. When Kathy heard that yet another teenager had died in the desert in a very similar program, she was devastated. It hurt just as much as it did when Michelle died. It was like, oh no, here we go again. Another one has died. Why is that? To outsiders, Michelle Sutton's death sounded like this sad, terrible story, but perhaps one that could be written off as an anomaly. When Kristen Chase died, six weeks later, it started to feel like a pattern. News outlets jumped on the story, asking, are these wilderness therapy programs torturing children? Are they marching kids across the desert until they die? What's a parent to do if he's tried everything and the child continues on the path of self-destruction? While some parents are turning their kids over to a bizarre survival course designed to straighten out problem children, a controversial wilderness program that costs parents up to $20,000 and may cost their kids a lot more. After Kristen Chase died, there was a media frenzy. Everyone wanted to know about these supposed torture camps in Utah, marching teens to their deaths. Gail Palmer was suddenly in the spotlight, and she went on the defensive. She told the Daily Spectrum newspaper that, quote, responsibility for these youths lies on the parents, on the program coordinators, and on the state. She told the newspaper what Kathy had told her about Michelle's struggles during those initial 21 phone calls— that Michelle had tried drugs and ran away from home. She painted Michelle as a rebellious, drug-addicted teen who entered Summit Quest as a last resort. She even said that it was possible that Michelle had smuggled cocaine into the program. Maybe that's why she died. Every fire that she lit, whether it be go to the media, to the newspapers, it wasn't enough that Michelle died. She wanted to then say that she smuggled in cocaine and died of an overdose. So they also said that uh, there was some cyanide in her autopsy report. So they're trying to stick with this idea that she smuggled in cocaine and she died of an overdose. And we're like, what do we have to do? Summit Quest searched kids upon arrival. There is no way that Michelle could have brought cocaine into the program. Besides, Michelle had never done cocaine. That wasn't one of the drugs that she experimented with. But it was clear that Gail was in damage control mode. If she had wanted to distance herself from the controversies surrounding Challenger, the death of Kristen Chase made that impossible. Kristen Chase and Michelle Sutton were the two girls who died in wilderness therapy programs in Utah in the summer of 1990. Their names were now forever linked. And therefore, so were the names Steve Cartesano and Gail Palmer. Steve Cartesano was interviewed on The Geraldo Show and questioned about Kristen Chase's death. Was your Challenger Foundation responsible for the death of Kristen Chase? No, we weren't. 
Kristen was with us, but she had not started the program. I think it, it's important for people to understand that the day that Kristen, the third day she'd arrived, she hiked a little bit more than the length of Central Park over a nine-hour period. Uh, she'd gone four and a half miles, had many breaks. The autopsy says that she was not dehydrated, and she collapsed. Both Summit Quest and Challenger claimed that there had been no warning signs, that both young women were completely fine until they weren't, that they collapsed suddenly and died. When I heard Steve Cartesano writing off Kristen Chase's death by saying that she hadn't even officially started the program yet, I couldn't help but think about my interview with Philip. The staff just was not prepared to deal with, uh, you know, kids in the desert. They didn't understand basic physiology. Certainly no one gave us advice on how much water we were to drink. We heard from Philip last episode. He attended Challenger at age 14 in 1990. And he told me a story that is eerily similar to Kristen Chase's. Just like Kristen, Philip got dehydrated before he even started Challenger, when he was in what they called holding, The first couple of days out in the desert meant to help kids acclimate. The first day of holding, they went on a pretty easy three to four mile hike, more of a long walk, really. I didn't drink any water. I don't think I even actually filled up my water bottles. I was used to being in Cleveland and riding my bike all day. I thought I was in plenty of good shape to go for a walk. Um, Didn't work out that way. We basically just hiked down into a canyon and, and looked around a little bit, and that was it. We went back up to camp. Philip was physically fit. He ran cross-country back in Cleveland. But this was the desert in June. And after that three to four mile hike, he was badly sunburned and feeling sick. Challenger had confiscated all of the items that he brought with him, just as they had with John McMahon. So all Philip had was what Challenger gave him, one set of clothes and a few survival items. A hat was not on that list, neither was sunscreen. My scalp burned, my whole head burned. And I actually got very, 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 very badly dehydrated that very first day to the point where I was uh, you know, throwing up a bright green bile. Over the course of the day, my condition just continued to deteriorate to the point where I felt sick. And I tried to eat some of the rations that they had given us, and, uh, and I just you know, started throwing them up. The Bureau of Land Management Utah suggests that anyone hiking in the desert consume between one and two gallons of water per day. They also warn against hiking in the hottest, sunniest parts of the day. But Challenger didn't take any of those precautions. And within one day, within one three to four mile hike, Philip was sicker than he had ever been before. And he was scared. He asked the staff for help. He said they could see that he was vomiting, but they didn't help him. I was accused of faking it, you know, which I don't know how you fake that. (laughs) I can't imagine how you would fake that. I think it's important to note that the counselors were not trained medical professionals. They were often young adults being paid minimum wage. They relied on the training that Challenger gave them, which included strong warnings that the adolescents would try to manipulate them. The counselors were conditioned to be suspicious of the teens in their care. It's a mindset that Steve Cartesano promoted. He often called teenagers master manipulators, and he even talked about it in interviews, saying that kids will fake injuries to get out of hiking. You know, some kids will say, I have, you know, a bad back, uh, or my knee hurts. And you look in the medical report, and they've never hurt their knee. They've never had a bad back. After the girls all claim they're pregnant, can't do this, the boys all have a football injury, their knee or their ankle. 
Philip survived his time at Challenger, which ended up lasting 81 days. He didn't receive any therapy during that time. He returned home malnourished, traumatized, and terrified of being sent back. Kristen Chase was not physically fit when she entered the program. In fact, her intake form states a long list of medical issues that Challenger was supposed to take into account. It includes difficulty running, pain in the back, frequent colds, and a knee injury. She brought a knee brace with her, but wasn't allowed to wear it. There were no medical doctors present, and Kristen Chase was not given a physical upon arrival. Both Tamira and Philip were actually at Challenger when Kristen Chase died, although they never met her. But Tamira remembers being told about it. So my memory of learning about Kristen was actually the staff telling us that a boy in another group had died. And what they told us was this boy had died of withdrawal from drugs. So they lied to us. It was convenient for Challenger to say that Kristen Chase died from a drug withdrawal because it makes it sound like it was her fault. And it's eerily similar to the lies that Gail Palmer was spreading about Michelle Sutton, that Michelle must have been doing drugs and that's why she died. I can't help but think, even if that were true, which it wasn't, wouldn't Summit Quest still be at fault? They were in charge of the miners in their care. It was their job to keep them safe. The same goes for the story Tamira was told about Kristen Chase's death, that a kid died in the program from drug withdrawal. Summit Quest and Challenger were licensed by the state of Utah as healthcare facilities. They claimed in their paperwork to have doctors on call and to have the capacity to care for participants going through detox. You know, and they spun the story in a way that it wasn't, they made it sound like it wasn't their fault. And I didn't have the savvy at that point to be like, I don't care what somebody died of. They're in your care, right? That's how I look at it now. I don't give a flying fuck if somebody's withdrawing off Xanax or alcohol or any of the other things that can actually kill you from withdrawal. It is your job to make sure they don't die. It is your job to give them care. But here's the thing. People don't like defending drug abusers, especially in the 90s, especially in Utah. And if Gail and Steve could paint these kids who died under their care as out-of-control drug abusers who were maybe already going down a path toward death, then maybe they could change the narrative. Maybe they could avoid criminal charges. Ken Stutler worked in licensing for the state of Utah, and he was alarmed that two teenagers died in wilderness therapy programs in a matter of weeks. There were ongoing criminal investigations into both deaths, but Ken wanted to address the wilderness therapy programs himself. I pulled together an emergency meeting with all of them and basically (laughs) read them the riot act saying, we're going to watch you very, very closely. But regulation for this type of program was very tricky, especially in June of 1990. 
There were regulations, which included minimum water and nutrition requirements, and listed that participants had to pass a detailed physical examination by a doctor. But here's the problem. The regulations were brand new. They had just been approved in January of 1990, and they were set to go into effect in July. So, when both Michelle and Kristen died, there were no regulations in place by the state. And if there are no regulations, then how do you punish someone for violating them? Kristen Chase died only five days before the regulations were to become official. Essentially, this means that all Ken Stetler could do was issue a severe verbal warning to the programs about how he would react to something like this in the future. We're going to take disciplinary action, whether that be a suspension, revocation, or conditional, depending on how serious the offense is. Ken told me that he didn't remember if Steve Cardisano was present at that meeting or if he sent a representative, but he does remember that Gail Palmer was there along with her sister, who worked with Gail. And how did they react to the meeting? Do you remember? They, they were silent throughout. They were silent throughout. And, and I think the only thing they said to me as they exited was, we're not at fault. Something um, to that effect, you know. We still believe we did everything right. During the emergency meeting, they were able to increase regulations for wilderness therapy programs on the spot. This is Maxwell Jackson. He worked for the Kane County Sheriff's Office at the time, and he was investigating Kristen Chase's death. We don't care if the kid can't start the fire. If the kid can't start the fire, he still needs, I believe we came up with uh, 1,500 calories a day. And the temperatures. So if it was going to hit, I I think it was 90, 95 degrees as a high that uh, they couldn't hike between sleep two and five o'clock, six o'clock, something like that. I also asked Ken Stetler about Gail Palmer's license to run Summit Quest. After all, Ken is the one who approved it. Gail was actually operating on a conditional license, which expired at the end of June. But Ken said that that's standard procedure, to offer a conditional license to a brand new organization. And basically what it does is it allows them to operate while the Office of Licensing has an opportunity then to inspect them in action, make sure that they're complying. And Ken told me that when Gail applied, her paperwork looked great. He didn't have any reason to deny her a license. He even said that when he first met Gail, he really thought that she was trying to start a program that would be good, that would help young people. My impression was that Gail and her sister were wanting to do the right thing and attempting to do the right thing. They just didn't know what they were doing. Gail Palmer's conditional license to operate Summit Quest was approved in April of 1990. And then it was just one month later that Ken Stetler got a call from Gail telling him that one of the participants, Michelle Sutton, had died. And how did she tell you that news? You know, how did she phrase it? She phrased it in a way that, uh, you know, she said the conditions were optimal. I mean, uh, there's no explanation for why Michelle passed away. I mean, she said it was like she was in a shopping mall. And I kept, I remember her continuing to use that term. It was 70 degrees and, you know, the climate was great. And so she passed it off as it's something that we don't know and can't explain it, but it's not our fault. 
That is how Gail put it. She said the conditions were so optimal that it was as if Michelle had been in an air-conditioned shopping mall and then inexplicably died. She would later say the same thing on The Geraldo Show. The other thing I want to respond to is what Detective Lent said, and that is the day that Michelle was hiking, we commissioned a weather report from Weather Bank in Salt Lake City and discovered that the high temperature that day was 72 degrees. With all the water that you need, which Michelle had, and with a 72-degree temperature, which is what it is in a shopping mall, I don't understand the finding of dehydration. Detective Lent, do you want to respond? Now, at this time, we had the temperature range between about approximately 75 and 85 degrees. And where did that information come from? We commissioned Weather Bank. Okay, well, you two can argue that out in, in court. Was there a moment or a series of moments in which your opinion about Gail Palmer shifted? Like, over the course of knowing her, did you at first think that she was doing things correctly? or well-intentioned and then at some point did that shift oh absolutely yeah well you know and and i wanted to believe that she was doing everything right and it wasn't until after michelle's fatality that i started wondering of course and especially when we got the word that yeah it was in fact dehydration i mean that just threw up red flag like crazy as it shouldn't be a situation where kids are dehydrating period so yeah that was when it shifted you would think that after two minors died in a very short time in similar programs that something would be done right away but the reality of what could be done at least from the department of human services was tricky and weighed down in bureaucratic processes SummitQuest and Challenger continued to operate while the criminal investigations were ongoing. There was a lot of discussion at that time whether or not to just completely outlaw the practice of wilderness therapy programs in the state. But I knew that there were several programs that were operating that were doing, frankly, some great work. And I mean, we're facing and still are facing to this day a mental health crisis in a lot of these kids that have troubles and You know, I thought it's just not right to discount this form of therapy altogether, but it is right to support regulation and oversight. The second autopsy on Michelle's body came back in September of 1990. It was essentially the same result. Michelle died from dehydration due to extreme weather. At this point, Kathy Sutton wondered if anything Gail ever told her was true. But she was still unclear on exactly what happened to her daughter. What did Michelle's final days look like? Was there anyone to care for her, offer her kindness? Did she suffer? There was one person who could tell her about Michelle's final days, and that was Michelle herself. Kathy found out that Michelle kept a journal every day while she was at Summit Quest, and Detective Dale Lint had that journal. While he had to keep it for evidence, he made a copy and sent it to Kathy. Kathy sat down and read her daughter's words, details about her last week alive. May 3rd, 1990, Thursday. Today I woke up and made myself some cream of wheat with raisins. It was gross. Andrea had a pretty hard time on today's... To me, you know, her her journal is her testimonial that uh, the programs 
will tell you anything you want to hear to get them out there. And then you find out it was all a bunch of lies. And if you look in Michelle's journal, you will see where Michelle's complaining of being sick and throwing up. And I think I caught the flu, she says. Well, she's berated for that. And she's told, you know, you need to get with the program. This was a turning point for Kathy, the beginning of what she has since called her crusade. I felt like my voice was for the children. So when I would speak in my crusade, whatever whatever venture I decided to take, I was speaking for the children. I was putting myself in their shoes and what they would say if they could and if they were allowed to and not thought of as a faker a whiner, a manipulator. That mentality to me needed to be weeded out of the industry. So I would speak for and in behalf of the children in all of my crusading. Michelle's journal is illuminating. It tells us the things that she experienced during her last week alive. But it doesn't tell us the whole story. For months, I tried to get in contact with the two counselors and the four other participants who were there with Michelle at Summit Quest. None of them would talk to me. I wanted to hear it from someone who was there, someone who survived. And then finally, I got a call. I can tell you, I, the day of her death, I have so burned in my memory that I literally went and had a reverse hypnotism done because I couldn't go to sleep at night. I would see what we saw that day over and over and over every time I closed my eyes. No, that day, I'll never forget it. That's next time on The Opportunist. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with Natalie Gregory, Peisha Eaton, and Sarah Dalgleish. Colin Thompson is our executive producer. Anton Doty is our editor and music editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. The Opportunist show cover art is by Joel Hassemeyer. Our theme song is Waltz for Zachariah by the album Cholet. Do you have a suggestion for the show, an opportunist that you'd like to hear us cover? You can email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. Subscribe to Cast Plus to listen ad-free with bonus episodes at castmedia.com slash castplus. Follow, rate, and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music.